in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be hearing about mysterious radio signals from across the universe. And finding out what science has in store for 2019. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Noah, we made it. 2019, the far distant future. I mean, it really hasn't been that long since our last podcast. I know, but look where we are. It's the year that Blade Runner was set, and The Running Man, and Akira. Well, so you're really leaning heavily into this dystopian future or present thing, aren't you? Well, I am pretty sure that science hasn't developed indistinguishable robotic replicants just yet. Or have they? No, Ben. No, they haven't done that. Well, anyway, listeners, I'd like to start 2019 with a bit of a mystery that's had astronomers scratching their heads for quite some time. This mystery centres on cosmic phenomena known as fast radio bursts, which we've covered on the podcast before. Now, their name might give you a small clue as to what they are, but here's Sriharsh Tendulkar from McGill University in Canada with a bit more detail. So fast radio bursts are these bright flashes of radio waves. In some sense, radio light. If you had eyes which are sensitive to radio light, you'd see these flashes in the sky. And they last only for a thousandth of a second. And they seem to be coming from halfway across the universe. Understandably, super brief radio bursts that last for a fraction of a second are easy to miss. To date, just a few dozen have been spotted. The first one reported was in 2007 by Duncan Lorimer. Before this, we did see flashes of radio light from these objects called pulsars, which are rotating neutron stars. Except all these pulsars are in our galactic neighborhood. They're very nearby. They don't emit too much energies. And we didn't expect to see anything from outside the galaxy, so we never looked for it. And now we know that there exist these bursts, which are trillion times brighter intrinsically than the pulsars that we know of. Part of the difficulty with spotting these fast radio bursts is that many telescopes in use focus on a fairly narrow part of the sky. Sriharsh and his colleagues have been using a special telescope in Canada designed to have a wider view. Its name is CHIME, and to the untrained eye, it looks like a series of skateboard halfpipes laid out next to each other. CHIME stands for the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment. It is a new telescope uh, built out in British Columbia, and CHIME is built for mapping the sky. So it looks at a huge swath of the sky at any given point of time, and it is a transit telescope, so it doesn't point to any particular location in the sky. It just looks at the sky overhead, and as the sky rotates, it makes a map of the sky. Last summer, Sriharsh and his colleagues used CHIME to detect 13 new fast radio bursts. Among the new finds, one in particular rather stood out. One is a repeater. It's only the second repeating fast radio burst that has been discovered yet. So most fast radio bursts seem to be single flashes of light. You look at it, the same location with a telescope for a long period of time afterwards, and people have not seen anything. People have looked for hundreds of hours. Having a repeating fast radio burst is really special because you can follow it up later. You can look at it with other telescopes, localize it very precisely, and then try to understand it better. The only other repeating fast radio burst was discovered in 2016, and this new find shows that it's not alone. 
also striking about the new finds is their radio frequency. Up until now, none have been found below 700 MHz. In this new work, Sriharsh and his colleagues have found fast radio bursts down to 400 MHz, the lowest they can detect with chime, and in a frequency range where none have been seen before. Having these detections at 400 MHz tells us that there do exist FRBs and it allows us to study in greater detail what sort of mechanism is causing fast radio bursts to be not detected at low frequencies. While this work expands the frequency range in which fast radio bursts have been detected, it still doesn't tell us where these mysterious intergalactic signals are coming from. There are a lot of different theories of what can cause fast radio bursts. There are some theories which involve newly born, highly magnetized neutron stars called magnetars, and all these are expected to be in locations of the galaxy where you know there would be a lot of activity going on, supernovae and so on and so forth. And then there are other models which could suggest that, you know, there are compact neutron star mergers which are happening, which would be further outside from the galaxy and possibly in a cleaner environment. Sriharsh reckons that these new fast radio bursts may be coming from what he calls dense and turbulent regions of galaxies, which contain a large amount of interstellar gas. But this remains to be seen. Understandably, pinning down exactly where fast radio bursts are coming from is something that researchers are very keen to do. Sriharsh is hopeful that the CHIME telescope will help identify many more of these signals and that these will help us develop a more accurate understanding of our universe. As a fast radio burst travels through the universe, it is interacting with electrons and the magnetic field in the universe. So There are a lot of different effects which we can study along the line of sight. So when we detect, you know, say 10,000 fast radio bursts, we can use this to sort of do a tomography of the universe. We can look through different lines of sight and understand the distribution of matter and magnetic fields in the universe. That was Sriharsh Tendulkar. To read his paper, head over to nature.com nature, where you'll also find a companion paper discussing the repeating fast radio burst in more detail. Later in the show, we've got a roundup of recent space missions that's in the news chat. But first, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Sharmini Bundell. Sticking solar panels on top of snowy mountains could be one way to make the most of the winter sun. In many countries, solar energy provides the most power over the summer. So researchers in Lausanne, Switzerland, decided to examine the best ways to keep renewable energy levels up over the winter. They found that at high altitudes, the lower cloud cover and the extra reflected light from the snow made mountain solar panels 150% more effective over winter than panels in urban locations. They note, however, that the panels should be installed vertically to prevent them getting covered in snow. Find that heartwarming story over at the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Sometimes doctors can diagnose people with genetic disorders based partly on their appearance. Distinct facial features are associated with several rare genetic disorders, but learning the subtle characteristics associated with them is tricky. Now researchers from a digital health company in Boston in the US have designed an app to give doctors a hand. An AI algorithm has been trained to identify the facial appearances associated with over 200 congenital and neurodevelopmental disorders. 
While the app has proved successful in many cases, its accuracy is dependent on the available data, and more work needs to be done to avoid potential biases and ethical issues. Read more about this technology at Nature Medicine. Listeners, every year, Lizzie Gibney, senior reporter here at Nature, does a bit of future gazing and looks ahead what the year holds for science. 2019 is no different, and she joins me here in the studio. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Ben. Well, let's start in January, which makes sense. I guess that's where we are now. Something's about to begin this month, so let's head to Antarctica. Exactly. There is a massive project that's kicking off. It's, in fact, a collaboration of eight different projects. Um, So this is an exploration of the Thwaites Glacier. It's absolutely enormous. It's about the size of Florida or the United Kingdom. And it's been melting and the melt's been accelerating as warm water flows underneath it. Um, And what the scientists are trying to figure out is just how unstable it is, really, like how long it's going to take to eventually potentially collapse, whether that be decades or hundreds of years. And I understand the teams are deputising some helpers for their experiments. Indeed. One of them uh, is robotic. So they have some underwater subs, including, in fact, Boaty McBoatface, which you may remember was charmingly named by uh, the British public, and also some seals. So elephants seals are among those that are going to be tagged and by studying their activity on and around the glacier and underneath it they'll be able to learn more. Well glaciers and glacier melt are something we covered a lot on the podcast last year and obviously the spectre of climate change looms large there but 2019 sees a rather ambitious plan to try and reverse climate change. Right so this is a project which might if it indeed happens in 2019 be the first really explicit attempt to understand if solar geoengineering might work. So this is the effort to effectively cool the planet by reflecting more of the sun's light. It's relatively controversial because some people worry that A, it might have some side effects that we don't know about and B, that it might lessen that imperative for governments to actually stop releasing the actual greenhouse gases that are causing the problem in the first place. Uh, But a lot of scientists have, on the other hand, said, well, this is something that we may need to use eventually. So we should try and study this process in a really thorough way. Um, So this is very, very early days and it will, I should say, only go ahead if um, an independent advisory committee say that it can. And what it would be doing is spraying really tiny, about 100 gram plumes of these kind of chalk-like particles into the stratosphere. And for the moment, just watching how they disperse and kind of seeing if scientists will be able to build up from there, you know, what is the effect? Because um, it's, it's thought of as being similar to when a volcano erupts, right? And it chucks up loads of particles into the upper atmosphere, and that can have a cooling effect over the planet. So we're trying to study the very first stages of whether it would be possible to do that. Let's move on to our next prediction, and it's a financial one. Now, research funding is a perennial issue. What's different this year? Well, in terms of the cash that countries spend on science, if you look at the trends over the past few years, China has been increasing and increasing, while the US has also been increasing, but much more slowly. So if you look back at those trends, it looks like this might be the year that those two lines cross and where China becomes the world's leading spender on research and development, at least when it comes to something that we call purchasing power. So the equivalent in terms of what they can get for their dollars versus what you can get elsewhere in the world. It's probably fair to say that even though the number of papers being produced is rapidly increasing, everyone would agree that the quality of research coming out of China isn't yet going to overtake that of the rest of the world. But I think it's pretty symbolically important that this might be the year when it becomes the biggest spender on science. 
Speaking of big spending, something's going on in Japan which will cost, well, a heck of a lot. Yes, if it indeed gets built. So we're expecting by the 7th of March a decision from the Japanese government on whether they're up for hosting the International Linear Collider. Now, this is a project that's been in the works for decades. This has been something that particle physicists have wanted to build as a successor to the Large Hadron Collider, which, as you probably all know, is based at CERN in Switzerland. This would be um, a precision experiment, so you'd be colliding electrons and positrons rather than protons. And so you get much cleaner, more precise results that they would then um, use mainly to study the Higgs boson in great detail, which was that last particle discovered that was like the, the missing piece in the standard model. Now, the issue is whether this is actually going to be enough of a motivation to build the new collider, because it's a little bit limited in what it can do. And the Japanese are the only community who have so far said that they want to host it. There was a report that came out last month, which was from um, the Science Council of Japan, which wasn't all that positive about building it. The government still might say, yeah, if lots of other countries in the world want to pitch in some cash, then we will build it. But it's on a little bit shaky ground at the moment. If this is the successor, what does it mean to the Large Hadron Collider itself? Well, the LHC is going to be running anyway until uh, I think the mid-30s because they are getting an upgrade already. Um, At the LHC, they actually want to build a successor at the site in Geneva, which would be probably not now till, you know, the 2040s or something, so well down the line. But I think certainly most physicists who are there would ideally like to have this linear collider be built in Japan as the most immediate successor. Well, if that's physics, let's move on to what many people think is the purest discipline of science, of course, microbiology. Ah, Who are you talking to? Well, quite. (laughs) Um, What's going on there? Well, one thing that might be really significant is that the World Health Organization is going to finish a big revision of its lab biosafety manual that are used all over the world in order to have the best practice when it comes to handling all pathogens. So, you know, we're talking about things such as Ebola and E. coli. And it's a big overhaul and it's the first one since 2004. And the idea, I mean, it sounds really sensible, but probably going to be quite tricky to actually implement, is to try and make the system really responsive to what experiments are actually happening on that site and how you're using these different pathogens. So I think the problem in the past has been that labs end up equating the particular risk of the pathogen with a particular biosafety level and it's a bit checkboxy. You then kind of end up implementing these strategies by rote rather than actually considering um, what practices you need in place, what kind of training you need, what kind of management you need in order to actually make really safe labs. So this has been underway now for a little while, but the revision will actually happen at some point uh, halfway through this year. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, to read more about these predictions, head over to nature.com slash news. Finally, this week, we're going to be chatting about the news in the news chat. Joining me in the studio is Nature's social media editor, Josie Olchin. Hi. And first up this week, we've got a little roundup of a flurry of space stories that have happened at the beginning of the year. Josie, tell me what's up first. Yes, it was a, it was a busy week uh, for space over, over Christmas. First off, on the 1st of January, NASA's New Horizons probe had its first flyby of the space rock MU69, and it's the most distant world visited by humanity. 
Now, people will probably remember New Horizon for sending back these wonderful photographs of Pluto as it flew past, but it's continued on its mission and it's now finding other objects. Tell us what's particularly interesting about this new object it's encountered. So ME69 is 6.5 billion kilometres away from Earth and is also quite small. It's only 31 kilometres long. What's also interesting is it was formed by a kind of a gentle collision between two objects, which is called a contact binary. Uh, scientists are really interested in this in this space rock because it originates from part of the universe that has been undisturbed um, since the solar system first formed in a kind of a state of deep freeze. So they're really hoping to um, get some really good pictures of this sort of pristine relic that no one's ever seen. You've been very diligently telling us about the scientific interest here, but there's been another thing that has been grabbing people's attention about this story, and that's the shape of this contact binary. Yes, it has a really unusual shape. Some people are calling it a snowman, others a bowling pin, and some others think it looks like a peanut. We've also had some people uh, on our Nature News uh, Twitter feed saying that to them it looks like some budding yeast. Yeah, it reminds me of the comet 67P that the Rosetta probe orbited and the Philae lander landed on some years ago, which people said looked a bit like a rubber duck. Yeah, and interesting enough, scientists um, also think that that's probably a contact binary too. Well, look at that contact binary, a term I'd never even heard of before, and now I know about two of them. Anyway, there's another story from early this year that we also want to squeeze in, and that's about the moon and a Chinese mission which has taken a few people by surprise. Yes, so China has actually been very secretive about this mission, um, only releasing a lot of the details at the very last minute. Um, But on the 3rd of January, the Chang'e 4 lunar probe landed on the far side of the moon, and this is the first time a probe has ever landed in that um, region safely. Now, we've seen images of the far side of the moon from Soviet probes and a few other probes that have taken photographs, but nothing's successfully landed there before, and that's because it's quite a tricky thing to do. Tell me about how they've achieved this. So the way that this lunar probe landed was made slightly more difficult because it's a it's a side of the moon that Earth never sees, so um, obviously maintaining contact with the probe was, was quite difficult. So the news that the, that the probe had actually landed safely was relayed by an orbiter and also the the actual landing was done uh, remotely without any contact from Earth. So the lander has got down to the surface against various odds and it's released a rover laden with various pieces of equipment. Tell me, what is it supposed to be looking for? What are the experiments it's going to be doing? The instruments on board are going to help um, to do a range of experiments from um, taking radio measurements of the early universe to um, a study of the radiation environment um, on the lunar surface. And it's also carrying a small living payload. So on board is a a small climate-controlled environment with plant seeds and also silkworm cocoons. Okay, so we'll have to watch this space and see what information the Chinese Space Agency release about the experiments that are being done currently on the moon. In the meantime, on a different note, Nature's been doing some digging into search terms, in particular what words scientists were searching last year. What were the frontrunners? Yes, so um, search term data from Scopus, the scholarly database, reveals the top searched for terms in 2018. At number one was cancer, followed by some uh, some quite timely terms, including blockchain, big data and AI. Now, you're the social media editor here at Nature, and you probably spend quite a lot of time thinking about the things that might be in the zeitgeist. Does this surprise you? Um, no, not really. So blockchain, big data and AI, they're all things that are becoming um, increasingly more important to researchers and scientists um, and the way they conduct their 
their work. Um, and especially in 2018, we're beginning to see a lot more funding for studies uh, involving these things. And we're also starting to see some proper results um, from studies that have used things like artificial intelligence. So we've seen some of the things that have jumped up in the rankings, but what's dropped down as a result? Yes, so searches for the term stress um, has dropped, interestingly, and also searches for the term climate change dropped compared to 2017. This could be for a number of reasons, and it's really hard to extrapolate why. Okay, so this rise in really hot research like AI, blockchain research, that suggests that there's a bit of a trend there. And there's also seems to be an indication that previous trends are starting to maybe become a little bit out of fashion. Tell me about those. Yes. So in 2017, um, the terms graphene and also the Internet of Things uh, were in the top 10 most searchable terms. And this year, they have completely fallen out of the top 10. Of course, we're very much speculating here. Who knows whether or not blockchain and big data will go the way of graphene and the Internet of Things when it comes to search rankings. But it's a fun thing to look at in the meantime. For more on that news story, the space missions and the rest of the scientific news, head over, as always, to nature.com forward slash news. Well, there we have it. The first show of 2019 is in the bag. But before we go, we've just got time to highlight a new video that we've made. It's all about an AI that thinks like a scientist. You can check it out over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time.